0: Musical, linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And today, our friends at Symposia are bringing us an interview with Mark Hayden, who is the Executive Director of Maps Canada. And uh, full disclosure here, even though I'm a lawyer myself, I, well, I left the practice of law over 30 years ago, and so I haven't taken the time to give much thought to the state of drug laws at this interesting point in time. And uh, to be brutally honest here, well, I don't really expect to live long enough to see a clear end to the war on drugs. But that said, even in my wildest dreams back during the time when I was practicing law, I never thought that I'd live to see the day that, well, at least here in California, I can go online and select some cannabis from a very wide array of choices and then have it delivered to my house within an hour. (laughs) So, uh, at least out here on the West Coast, uh, I've lived to see more relaxation of the drug laws than I ever expected to see. Now, uh, interestingly, uh, at least to me, Today we're going to be hearing from the Executive Director of MAPS Canada, and in just a couple of days I'm going to be playing another recording, and this is from a panel discussion that was held in February of 1991. And one of the speakers that you're going to hear from is a young Rick Doblin, who proudly tells us that at the time, MAPS now has 130 members. (laughs) Big change from them to now, huh? So, as we're listening to Mark Hayden right now, it seems to me it would be uh, good to keep in mind that while we're not going to get everything that we want right away, nonetheless it's important to have a long-range vision. And uh, that's what Rick Doblin had back in 1991. And while maps may not have exactly followed the path that he chose in every instance, well, it seems to me his vision has certainly been reached in many ways. Now uh, let's join Symposia's Lex Pelger for his interview with Mark Hayden.
1: Today's show is made possible through your crowdfunded support on Patreon. Unlike other crowdfunding sites, Patreon lets you chip in a few bucks a month to help us keep the lights on. Find out more at patreon.com symposia. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. This week, I'm very excited to present an interview with Mark Hayden. He is a counselor of children, he is an expert on drug policy, and he is the executive director of MAPS Canada. In this episode, he wrestles with the thorny issues about how to regulate these drugs as they emerge from the dark marketplaces to the light. Of course, there's lots of disagreements about how to regulate these drugs, but it's great to sit down with someone who's trying to wrestle with these tough questions. One other item before we get to the interview, I've gotten the first stash scanned in from the Psychedelic History Project. So now there's about 500 newspaper articles from Timothy Leary's archives, safely in the computer. So if there's anybody out there who'd like to volunteer to help up the files, apply the metadata, get a first look at these great pieces of psychedelic history that we found, reach out. It'd be great to have all the help we can get to turn this into a great archive. Now here's Mark Hayden of Maps Canada. I am sitting here on a lovely tree-lined street in Vancouver, Canada, and a beautiful home filled with art sitting next to Mark Hayden of MAPS Canada. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Lex. I think the first thing I wanted to know was, how did you come about being involved uh, to be running MAPS Canada?
2: Well, I worked for decades in the addiction services. Um, My final role was that of supervisor. I ran a clinic. And it was the organization that I worked for said that they were evidence-based. And the evidence for psychedelic treatments in helping with addictions is profound. Um, Specifically, Ibogaine, uh, there's many examples. Ibogaine for the treatment of heroin addiction, psilocybin for tobacco addiction, um, LSD for alcoholism. The, The evidence is compelling and clear. And when I would talk to my organization about doing what we did better, using the tools of psychedelics... I got very little positive response, and so eventually I needed to be louder. It was interesting because I, I speak at many conferences, and often I'm, my academic interest, what I usually speak about, is a post-prohibition public health regulation of all currently illegal drugs. And so I'm often the solution guy who's on the panel at the end of the conference, And Rick Doblin would appear on the same panel in many different countries. And so I would watch Rick's gig about psychedelics, and he would watch my gigs about how we should regulate drugs after Prohibition ends. And I eventually realized that I needed him and he needed me. I needed him because I wanted to wear a hat that I could talk on the podium about psychedelics without getting flack from my organization. And so I needed to have a MAPS Canada hat so that I could talk widely about psychedelics and their potential for healing. And he needed me because he wanted to run a study up in Canada and he wanted to have Canadians write checks and get Canadian tax receipts. And he couldn't do that from the States. So that was the birth of MAPS Canada. I guess
1: my first question I'll ask now, it's what I usually end with, how would you regulate the world if you were put in charge of the drug situation
2: i write and speak about this a lot so all drugs are different i'm actually interested in the regulation of all drugs from heroin to psychedelics to cannabis to crack cocaine because we need a prohibition doesn't work so we need to have a different model and all drugs should be regulated differently depending on the risk benefit profile but let's talk about psychedelics so what are the risks of psychedelics so, the risks of all drugs can be put on a continuum um, that actually three continuums, which is addiction potential, toxicity, and behavior. So, let's look at those three risks with psychedelics. So, addiction potential. I, walk, I worked for the addiction services for 30 years, and I would always have a caseload, and nobody ever walked into my office saying, I can't stop taking LSD. It never happened. You cannot become addicted to the classics. Now, you can have a problematic relationship with some other ones, but but the classic psychedelics is essentially zero in terms of addiction potential. Let's look at toxicity. So Albert Hoffman, who invented LSD, argued that LSD was one of the least toxic drugs on the face of the earth. And the argument that he made for that was the window of efficacy to harm. So what do I mean by that? I mean... If you take the last prescription drug that you took, and it doesn't really matter what it is, and you take six times the dosage, you've probably done yourself harm. So the one to six ratio is very, very common with most prescription drugs. With LSD, it's in the thousands. To actually demonstrate harm from LSD, you have to do thousands of times the dosage that you would do as an active dosage. So, so the, the toxicity is incredibly low. In fact, one can argue that LSD is less toxic than water. If you do a thousand times the dosage of water, what's the dosage of water in a day? Let's say six, eight cups, ten cups, whatever. If you multiply any of those numbers by a thousand, you're gonna die. Water can kill you if you take enough of it. So one could actually argue that LSD is less harmful than water. So the toxicity of the classical psychedelics is incredibly low. So addiction potential is virtually zero. Toxicity is incredibly low. But there are problems. And certainly if you, one of the things I do is Google alerts. And I Google alert all the classic and other psychedelics. And so I every day, single day I have any media attention to any psychedelic in North America comes to my inbox. Wow, and, the, <laughs> and, and there's a lot of issues with media attention to psychedelics and certainly the problems that happen with psychedelics. But it's always one thing. It's always lack of supervision. People who do these in situations where they are not guided and not supervised and they behave badly. And so all of the problems of psychedelics come down to that one factor, which is lack of supervision. So in a post-prohibition world, if we wanted to reduce the harms and maximize the benefits of psychedelics, what we would do is we would provide a context for people to experience them in a supervised scenario. So... In a So let's think big picture for a second. So who would regulate? So if you look at the options for regulation, um, governments, first of all, the first option, um, wouldn't work very well because governments swing all over the map. You know, we have left, we have right, we have in the middle, we have governments that swing widely in terms of belief systems and so it it can't it's unstable if government tried to regulate it what we would have is an unstable regulation process that would be shifting constantly that wouldn't work we need to have stable governance that is based on public health principles and you can't do that within the context of politics so that won't work can you do it within the context of commercialization? Well, no, because commercialization has the agenda to increase sales. That's not going to work. So you need to have some organization that is arm's length from government and also arm's length from big business. So the model that I propose is a commission. So a commission that has legislative authority can regulate based the finances of it. Can have a stable public health vision and have the authority to essentially sell and regulate and manage the money associated with the sales from all currently illegal drugs. And then within the commission, they have an arm for psychedelics, they have an arm for cannabis, an arm for cocaine, an arm for heroin, that would all be regulated differently. Within the psychedelics arm, they would then say, you can apply for a license to supervise psychedelics. And you would have psychedelic supervisors as a new profession. And within that profession, you can have the supervision based on a whole variety of different models. You could supervise um, based on aboriginal models. You would have peyote people. You would have ayahuasca people. But you could also have dance parties. You could have the therapists showing up. It doesn't really matter. You could have people wandering through the forest. It doesn't matter what the circumstances of the supervision are. What matters is there's somebody responsible and they're responsible for set, which is the expectation of the person will be screened and briefed and set up for the experience. They're responsible for the setting, what is the environment they're taking it in. They're responsible for the, 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 the uh, substance itself, making sure that it's clean and pure and a known dosage. They're responsible for the safety of the environment and they're responsible for giving people known dosage. So the safety discussions will happen. So if they tick those boxes, set, setting safety, dosage, um, are all controlled by the supervisor, these circumstances of it can wide vary widely. It doesn't really matter. So then you would have a new profession being formed. It's called psychedelic supervisor. And they, within the context of psychedelic supervisor, you would probably have different branches. Um, There would be, I mean, the skill of supervising people at a multi-day dance festival is completely different from the skill of supervising people who are coming to you for post-traumatic stress treatment. So psychedelic psychotherapy is different from running a dance party. So there would be different streams within that that would require different levels of skill. Now, I've talked about this. I wrote a paper on this. You can find it at MarkHayden.com. And I've written lots of papers, and this particular paper was the, the one that took the longest to write because I kept sharing my ideas at various conferences, and I would get feedback, and I'd have to think about the feedback long and hard. And mostly the feedback that I got was somebody in the audience would stand up and say, Hey, Mark, I love psychedelics, and what I do with my wife when I'm taking a psychedelic in bed, I do not want to be supervised. (laughs) <laughs> and I really had to think about that. So that was a challenge. It was a very significant challenge, and I really had to wrap my head around that. And so what we did is we we developed a stream for self-supervision. And nice. so self-supervision or supervising friends should be allowed, but it is reasonable to assume that the people who want to self-supervise are willing to be trained. So in order to get a certificate of self-supervision – you can, and what you have to do is sign up for a training program, and it's maybe a few weekends that probably includes some kind of experience. And again, the, the, the issues of set, setting, safety, and dosage are discussed. And then at the end of the day, you can get a certificate that allows you to access the medicine and use it with yourself or with friends. But what you can't do is you can't sell the service, and you can't provide therapeutic interventions for others. You cannot hang up a shingle and say, I'm going to treat post-traumatic stresses or to come and pay me. So the level of expertise for therapy is different. So we would have two streams. We would have the certificate stream, which allows for self-supervision, and we would have the licensing stream. And the licensing stream would be professionals who can provide the service and be paid for it, can provide therapy and within that, they would re- respond to a professional body of therapists where they essentially can be disciplined if they step out of line. So they would be similar to any other profession from medicine to law, is that they are accountable to a professional body for the maintenance of their license. Now, in, the, in our paper, the, the most difficult section was access to youth. Because we really struggled with that, and we rewrote it many times. So how would we recommend youth be in this model? So in order to answer that question, we dove into the literature. And we looked first at the aboriginal literature, and we said, how do youth access psychedelics experiences in aboriginal context? How do the peyote folks do it? How do the ayahuasca folks do it in terms of youth? And what we observed is it's all over the map. So in 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 many ayahuasca communities there is no age barrier and now there is none. By that I mean pregnant women show up and drink ayahuasca. They show up with their nursing babies. Their toddlers fall around the group and trip all over the place. Their young children come and go and walk in and out of the ceremonies, and teenagers are there as well. There is no age issue. It's just done in family context, and it's done in community context, and age is no barrier at all. It's never discussed. Peyote folks can be different. So the, the peyote traditions can very strategically involve young people at significant ages, things like um, puberty, for example. Then you're invited into the tent with the elders. And so within the aboriginal world, it was it was hard to make clear statements because there is no one model. So then we looked at alcohol access, and we looked at the various states in the United States that allow alcohol access with parental supervision, and I thought that was an important thing to acknowledge. So, and, and again, it wasn't a specific age. If the parents are supervising, it's okay, is essentially what the, the legislation in some states say. And then we looked at um, health access. So if you want to, because what we're actually advocating for is, is a health service. So if we want to look at health, how do youth access health? And again, it's, it's, it's based on level of maturity. So in terms of health legislation, they talk about mature versus immature minors. And an immature minor is essentially a baby who shows up in the arms of their mother. The mother makes the decision. The baby doesn't have an opinion about what happens. It's the mother that will decide. The mother says, you know, we've got this infection on the foot and please do this and that and the other. And the mother discusses with the doctor and the decision is made by the mother. But later on in this infant's life, when the infant becomes a mature minor and they can walk into the doctor and say, I'm I'm sexually active, I want to be on the pill, what the doctor has to assess is does this individual... Know what they're asking for? Are they able to make an independent decision about their request for health service? And if the doctor concludes that yes, this is an independent person who understands what they're asking for, they can provide the health service. So when you're asking for, when you're providing health services, there isn't a clear age cutoff. It's just about ability to make an independent decision about what you're asking for. So we put all of that information together. And we said, okay, so how should youth access psychedelics? And essentially what we said is, yes, youth can access psychedelics. If they do it within the context of a mature adult, back to the aboriginal piece, all of the aboriginal access to psychedelics is based on adult wisdom. So there is an adult leader who has a significant place in the community who are involving the youth in a significant way based on the wisdom of the culture. So in our model, what we suggested is that yes, youth could access psychedelic experiences, but they would be guided by adults in a variety of different contexts. They would be encouraged to bring their parents to the experience and do the parent-child bonding thing, With psychedelics can be very powerful for. So they would be encouraged to participate with their parents. But if they really don't want to show up with their parents and they want to access the experience, they can, so long as there is a person who has been trained to provide the service to youth. And that would be a licensed professional.
1: Wow. That is courageous. So few people tackle this question of youth stuff at all because it's so fraught with uh, controversy. Mm-hmm. I love that. You, you can have your magic mushrooms, but you can only get them from your grandmother.
2: Right. <laughs> right. <Would> be...
1: Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a wonderful way of thinking about it. It's such a hard problem to grapple with. The only person I know trying to t- socially answer that question is Jonathan Thompson of uh, Psychedelic Parenting. He talks a lot about making a, a Western model combining the old wisdom. On this stuff with the youth. Yes. And that's a great solution. Yes. Um, I wanted to circle back to what you were saying about access, though, because I can hear in uh, probably in the ears of some listeners, I think it's a great idea of the self administration stream that you were talking about, but the barrier of a couple of weekends of training is still fairly high, uh, considering that the access to the two deadliest drugs, alcohol and tobacco, is so easy. And to say that somebody wouldn't be able to access psychedelics uh, um, that easily when their toxicity is so much less, uh, I think would concern some people that there's still a system in place that will keep someone from taking magic mushrooms even though you can just go and pick them off the ground around here.
2: Well, if the goal is to maximize the benefit and minimize the harm, if we think about – let's answer that question from the big picture – Let's look at the history of psychedelic drugs. Psychedelic drugs have always been available in Aboriginal contexts in the context of healing and celebration of transitions. And the transitions are everything from puberty to seasonal changes. And the healing ranges from psychological to physical. So a wide range of healing healing traditions have been, um, can be observed in a variety of different aboriginal communities and and if we look around the society the the world today we can see the huichil use of peyote we can see aboriginal use of ayahuasca in a variety of different traditions we can see the Curanderos use of uh, mushrooms in mexico we can see shamanic use of amanita muscaria in, in in russia in siberia and so we can look at all of these traditions that echo throughout ancient history and we can say what's the commonality here And the commonality is they've been used within a cultural context for healing and celebrations. And the celebrations are spiritual and um, ritualistically binding to a culture with a certain set of belief systems. And they've always been done supervised by adults. And there's always a training program involved with these things. You know, if you want to become the shaman of the culture, you involve in it's decades of, of working with learning the songs and learning the rituals and learning the belief systems and learning to be a healer to the community. So Aboriginal has massive, long healing trajectories. And so to ask somebody to participate in a couple of weekends, I don't think is actually a barrier at all. And as a society, we want to a- adopt a wise approach And all of the harms come from lack of understanding of how to structure these things. And so asking people to participate in a process where they learn to to approach these sacred medicines with wisdom, I think is absolutely and completely reasonable. That makes sense and is well said. Because
1: I still think the best model I've ever seen anybody propose for the West is Aldous Huxley's novel The Island. I think – I still haven't read anything better of how the West might incorporate this stuff. And it actually goes back to a Gary Snyder uh, quote that I've never been able to find but I quote all the time. And he said it's going to take us three generations to incorporate these drugs because the first will be – The teenage years and the overconsumption without quite knowing what's happening. And then will come the very safe academic psychedelic renaissance of figuring out some of the science. And what he hopes to see was the third generation, which I think is, I hope, is starting now, where we take this. Aboriginal indigenous wisdom that you're talking about, and combine that with this biochemistry peer reviewed science approach and find rituals that will work in this Western mindset that is not an Aboriginal mindset, that is not an Eastern mindset, and try to figure out what works for us here
2: and now. Absolutely, I agree. I mean, what were the last four decades have actually been a historical anomaly. Psychedelics have always been used by societies within the cultural context of spirituality and healing, and they've never been targeted in the way they were in the '60s. In fact, it wasn't psychedelics that got targeted; it was the youth that were using that was targeted. If you think about why why psychedelics became criminalized, it was because the the Vietnam War and the the the, the separation between the status quo and the hippies, the the baby boom generation, had a massive number of young people mature at the same time in a society which is unusual and then this war was fought and the young folks said we don't want to fight they didn't want to be plucked off their comfortable couches and given a gun and dropped into a jungle and told to kill people they were actually quite happy the way they were and they didn't believe in the war they didn't see it as being relevant for them and they didn't want to fight and the nixon administration decided to criminalize these people because they were arguing against the status quo. And they also, the, the loosening of the sexual mores, there was a, a certain be, sexual behaviors that were seen as normal and the young folks were walking around topless and it was seen as completely offensive to the status quo. So the dominant culture did what dominant cultures often do in targeting what they see as an unwanted group, is they criminalize their drug use. And that's been true for centuries. And so during the 60s, when these things became criminalized, it wasn't actually about the drugs. It was about something else. And the process of criminalizing prevents the actual traditions from developing and maturing and that the control what people use, how they use it, and how they behave when they're using a substance. So the process of drug prohibition killed the development of the cultural norms that all societies have used to control people's drug-using behaviors. If you look around the world today and you look at a benign relationship that a culture has with a drug, what you see is that it's being controlled by social rituals and social norms, and sometimes sacred rituals, but not always sacred rituals. And drug prohibition prevents the development and the maintenance and the creation and structure of those social norming behaviors. So then what we have is out-of-control drug use. And if you go to the downtown east side in Vancouver and you look at somebody crawling down the sidewalk, picking at it in cocaine psychosis or crystal meth crazy behavior, really what's happened here is drug prohibition. And drug prohibition has killed the socially controlling mechanisms that have always been used for centuries around controlling drug-using behavior. So as we end drug prohibition, and cannabis is the, the crack in the prohibitionist's wall, so as we end drug prohibition, we really need to adopt a process of social wisdom. And the, the fear that I have is we'll commercialize it. And then drugs will be given to the commercial companies of the world and we'll have endless bad behavior and we'll see it as a money game. And so that's not wise as a society. If we can adopt a wise approach, what we will do is we will ritualize it. And we will structure drug use with a whole variety of social norms and social rituals that determine what people use, how they use it, and how they behave when they're using it. And if cannabis is first, psychedelics would be very wise to do as the second drug because they're so easily structured, they're so easily ritualized, and there's so many traditions to draw on. And then we can take those traditions and apply it to other drugs as well.
1: And so what was your perspective from being here in Canada, watching drug prohibition roll across the United States, as well as seeing the psychedelic revolution here while working with addiction and seeing these threads come
2: together that's an interesting question and certainly what i i saw as a younger person as psychedelics went into the community at first it was full of love joy and spirituality and there was a, a a cultural revolution that was incredibly positive and because it wasn't guided by elders it deteriorated. It, it wasn't woven into the culture. And essentially, it went wrong. And it went wrong quite badly. So the, there was no understanding, although there was limited understanding of the real thoughtfulness that needs to go into the set, the setting, the dosage, and the safety issues. So some people understood that, and some people didn't and there certainly wasn't an understanding of the of how to work with different medicines and different different drugs and so you know cannabis was in the mix psychedelics were in the mix LSD was prominent but then cocaine came in the mix and then intra- in, injection drug use came into the mix and quite frankly the whole community became sicker and sicker and sicker and there wasn't it wasn't guided by elders it wasn't guided by by well thoughtful structured ritualistic practices the maximizing the benefits and the minimizing the harms was not part of the discussion and so behavior became worse and infectious diseases then came into the mix and it became quite frankly a mess and the prohibition made it worse so now that we're ending prohibition, what we need to go back and say, let's rethink this. Let's adopt a wise approach to this whole process. Let's think about how we can structure these things using a, a wide variety of ritualistic practices. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in ritualistic behaviors from all drugs. It's very easy to understand ritualistic behaviors when we're talking about psychedelic drugs, but rituals also apply to injection of heroin. You know, and if, you in, if you use health rituals around the injection of heroin, and you swab the site, and you do it in a ritualized, structured way that includes health as a component, you can improve people's injection practices. So ritualistic behaviors can be used in a whole variety of different contexts with drugs. It's not just shamanic shamanic rituals with ayahuasca, but it's ritualistic behaviors with all kinds of things. So let's look at cannabis in the context of ritualized. Because cannabis really isn't ritualized. You know, maybe some people would argue, well, we smoke it at rock concerts, and they would say, therefore, it's ritualized. I I disagree. I I think it's a a profoundly unritualized behavior. People will smoke a joint walking down the street. They'll smoke a joint at the beach. um, There's a whole variety of different contexts for it. And now that we're, as a society, going through the process of legalizing it, I think we need to have some real thoughtful discussions about how to put it into some kind of container and some kind of context. And with some fascination, I watched that starting to develop. Um, Stephen Gray's book, um, Cannabis and Spirituality, is an example. So in the release of his book, he had a whole variety of different speakers, and they were talking about people who are now providing what they call green ceremonies. And they're bringing people together in circles, in community, and they're providing a variety of different spiritual structures to the experience. I think that's important. I think if governments were wise, they'd be finding those people and encouraging them because it gives it a context. In this case, it's a spiritual context, but it's a, it's a context that is important. And it provides... It provides um, a context so the behavior is woven into the society in a way that maximizes the benefit and minimizes the harms, which is really all the the goal
1: with all currently illegal drugs. It's great to have your perspective from up here where Canada might be winning the race to a sane approach to cannabis, but cannabis is such a tricky one out of all the drugs because not only is it an intriguing industrial material, but it's also a great intoxicant. And a great spiritual medicine, and also just a great medicine. And so the ways to regulate this, where yes, we want people to be able to access this to enjoy themselves, but it's also needs to be as cheap a possible medicine for elderly patients when this is the best thing to heal them. And how to regulate that stuff? I just it's been really hard to see anybody who's done a great job of it, even across the United States. But you also have been done, doing a lot of work here, where. Vancouver specifically is leading the way, and it's in harm reduction. And I'm not, and I know that sometimes in the psychedelic world, people don't know as much about the harm reduction side of things, which is a shame, and it's why I'm going to be featuring more lectures and talks on here about harm reduction. But Vancouver is the epicenter of sane reaction to the drugs that would typically be called hard. There are two safe injection facilities here. Uh, the only two in North America that are legal, and there is such a humane reaction in general to people who are choosing to inject drugs for whatever reason. And so I'd be curious on your take of watching Insight arise in these other harm reduction facilities up here.
2: Well, the dialogue in Vancouver has included the voice of the users. So if I think about why Insight was first started... There was a a conference, a a gathering, where a variety of people spoke and argued for it. And the people that spoke for it were health practitioners, specifically nurses, were present at that particular event. The drug-using group that is the downtown east side politically active group called VANDU, Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, that is the politically active voice of probably the most marginalized population in Vancouver, Spoke loudly. Parents were present. In fact, there was a, a a lawyer. He was a public prosecutor, and he got up on the stage and he said, "While I spend my life prosecuting criminals, I don't want my drug-using, my heroin-using son to die in the streets of the back alleys of Vancouver. I would like him to be able to access a supervised injection site." So we had parents stepping up. We had drug users stepping up. Intravenous drug users. And we had healthcare practitioners stepping up to the plate. And the what we've seen in Vancouver over the decades is the overdose death crisis comes and goes. We're experiencing one now with fentanyl, absolutely, but it has happened before. And in fact, it comes and it goes. And it will, even if we did nothing, I imagine that fentanyl crisis will subside and then it will come back. So, um, so we've w- watched this for many decades, is, is overdose death rates rise and fall. And so we really need to fundamentally approach it differently. And the, the variety of voices that came together to advocate for insight were strong. And pol- politically, it was very interesting because we had a mayor, Mayor Philip Owen, who was a right-winged, moneyed politician, so he was the last person you would ever expect to step up to the podium and to support the creation of a supervised injection site. And what he said is, I need to do the right thing. And he just he did something different. Every other mayor had stood on the corner of Main and Hastings, which is the center of our open drug scene. And every other mayor, before he arrived on the scene, when asked by the media, what are you going to do about this mess in your city?, every other mayor would blame a different level of government. And they'd say, I'm helpless, it's somebody else's problem. And Mayor Philip Owen said, no, it's my problem, it's my city, I'm going to try to address this. And he went over to Europe, and he took some healthcare practitioners, he took a media person, and he did a tour, and he came back to Vancouver with a vision. And he basically said, we need to start... A fundamentally different approach to drugs in our society, and it wasn 't just supervised injection site it was a large it was it was bigger than that it was about prescription of heroin it was about providing services to active drug users that wasn 't based on abstinence, so it was the whole range of different services that he advocated for, which included supervised injection sites they became the popular thing that the the media took a hold of, but it was really within the context of providing a wide range of harm reduction services. And then um, he was booted out by his political party, his right-wing party. And then we had an election in our city. And the election was essentially fought around the issue of, should we create a supervised injection site? And Larry Campbell, who was an RCMP officer who then turned into our city coroner and then wanted to be the city mayor, argued that we needed a supervised injection site. And he was a very charismatic individual And he won. And so the citizens of Vancouver got behind Larry Campbell, and he said, we will open a supervised injection site, and lo and behold, he did. But there was some interesting politics there, because it was led by the city. Now, the city doesn't have health money. The city doesn't run any health services. So Larry, rather paradoxically, got up and said, we will open a supervised injection site. But he actually really meant, you know, I will leverage the people who have health money to create this service but he couldn't do it himself he runs policing services he doesn't run health services the city doesn't run health the province runs health so it was an interesting little drama that happened is what you had was a city politician providing a vision for a health organization and the health organization got in line and then provided the service
1: wow what a story yeah it, and it is. If anybody wants to look up the the history of Insight and the 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 activism of the users, it is a it's a beautiful story led by an activist poet uh, who passed not too long ago. But it's very inspiring about how much activism and
2: sharing stories can really change the world. Well, it was a battle. We had a battle fought in Vancouver. The battle was captured in a film called "The Fix: The Story of an Addicted City" by Nettie Wild, and really the, the that film dramatically portrays. The conflict between the two voices. And the two voices were manifest in the Van Group and the Chinese Downtown Business Association. So they spoke very loudly uh, against each other, and Nettie Weil filmed it all. And it's really interesting to go back and look at that film and see what the, the people who opposed Insight said, and then what the research demonstrated actually happened. Because all of the fear based sound bites did not come true. You know, it'll, it'll, it'll create a social disturbance. It'll attract undesirable. It'll send a wrong message to our children. It'll create bad behavior. All of that, those fear-based soundbites that were predicted, none of it happened. So the fear-based soundbites of the drug prohibitionists clearly, from a view of the evidence, did not come true. They've been consistently wrong when they make predictions about ending drug prohibition or even creating new services. And, you know, the whole prohibitionist rhetoric is always not true when you look at it through the lens of science.
1: And in this tough battle, what was the messaging strategies and the activism techniques that seemed to help the most to win the hearts and minds of the locals?
2: We need to take care of our children we need to take care of our children our children are dying and if we allow our children to access a supervised injection site they won't die
1: that would work that's yeah. great because um, it is just for those out there if you've never been to the Van- da- vancouver's downtown east side it is rather remarkable because it is more open drug use and a harder life than i've seen almost anywhere in public on this continent Oh, on the flip side, there is a genuine sense of humanity going on. And I don't know if it's just because Canadians are, tend to be nicer people, but when they walk by the users on the street, there's a little bit more acknowledgement of like, these people exist and they are there. They're not my people, but I understand that they are people. And being around a place like New York, there is just such a, a chasm between us and them, it feels like. And things can be so hard right in front of you and it gets ignored. And so all the people I know doing harm reduction in the United States, they say, we want to be like Vancouver.
2: Right. Well, I, I think the voice, to, to some extent, there's a variety of forces that have created that. But just thinking about it from a public health perspective, one, one, of, the, one of the public health variables that increases life expectancy is empowerment. If you want to track how long people live one of the best ways to do it is to look at the sense of power and control people have in their lives so a public health intervention is empowerment so the 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 role that van has played the vancouver area network of drug users the voice of the marginalized people in our city the voice of the injection drug using community is one can argue, is a public health intervention. The more they are included, the more their voice is heard, the more they're allowed to speak loudly on the podium, the healthier they will be as a community. And certainly they've been speaking loudly for their their needs, and they've been listened to. And so they are part of the dialogue in Vancouver, and they advocate for their own needs very clearly, and they've done it skillfully. Wow, that's a beautiful idea. Just giving people a platform is a way to Mm -hmm. give them health. And, it, and it's interesting. I know the woman who started it well, Ann Livingston, is a bit of a hero of mine, and she, uh, she began the organization. And so to work with, you know, a me- honestly, a mentally ill, marginalized, intravenous drug using, physically unwell population is really challenging. And Anne did it incredibly skillfully, and she, she really brought people into a place of community And she allowed them a voice. And then she would say things like, you know, if you want to have power, if you want to speak, you need to learn how to do it on the podium. So she would train people with speaking skills, you know, and she would bring people together and they created a board. And then she would say, well, if we want to function as a board, we have to be able to function as a bureaucracy, which is what they are. So they need to be trained in terms of how you communicate around the boardroom table. So they have communication skills. And then they have to write because they have to d- document what their issues are. So then they have to have writing skills. And so it was quite interesting to me to hear, you know, I worked in the addiction services, and occasionally a client would run up, wind up in my office, and what he would say is, um, I found recovery through Vandu. You know, I found healing in Vandu. Now, Vandu is not a treatment organization. It's a politically active group. And so when people talk about it being a healing for them, it makes sense to me. It's not set up to be a healing organization, but the outcome of empowering people is profoundly healing.
1: Community is the way to treat the hole that, that yes. drugs are trying to fill.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: And so one thing I definitely want to ask about, you have some exciting stuff coming up here with MAPS Canada and the research and crowdfunding.
2: We do. We have just kicked off a crowdfunding campaign. We finished our stage two clinical trial for a, for a, a psychedelic to become legal in Canada, within the context of health, we need to do a stage 1, 2, and 3 clinical trial. We finished our stage 2, and now we're just kicking off our stage 3. When we finish our stage 3 clinical trial, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy will be legal in Canada. And so we need to fund it. You can't do these things on the cheap. It has to be rigorous science with the oversight of Health Canada. And the only way to fund it is by the people. Large pharmaceutical companies will never support what we're doing because, quite frankly, we're taking people off of mental health medications. And so, and we only give MDMA three times. So there's no business model. Nobody's going to make any money on this. In fact, phar- large pharmaceutical companies will not do well from what we're doing. So therefore, we have to appeal to the people. And so what we're doing is we're launching a crowdfunding campaign, and we're asking everybody to both spread the word as widely as we can and to contribute. And it doesn't matter what you contribute. Some people contribute lots and some people contribute a little bit. If everybody contributes something, we'll be able to fund this this thing, and we will legalize MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And if you go to the mapscanada.org site... Um, you'll see the Donate Now button, and that's all it takes.
1: That is all it takes. I encourage anyone out there to give this campaign because it is a powerhouse of a drug for trauma in all of these different ways. And a, a last question concerning that, how would you most like to see the model for MDMA specifically since that seems to be the first one that will be rolling out? If Again, if you were put in charge of the health bureaucracy of uh, Canada.
2: Well... I'm going to gaze firmly into my crystal ball and make a prediction. So I believe what will happen is we will demonstrate that it is effective in the treatment of, MD- of treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. And so the government will look at that and say, yes, we will give you... The authority to use this. We'll apply for special access to do it quickly. We'll start to open clinics and we'll hire a bunch of therapists and we'll be providing MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. And who will be treating will be soldiers and police and fire and ambulance first responders who are, generally speaking, a highly traumatized population. And so the public will see that we're using a psychedelic to treat people, and all of the old fear-based prohibitionist soundbites of, you know, bad people use bad drugs will suddenly be clearly untrue. You know, this is something, a new model is being developed here. And so if they lied to us about cannabis, and it doesn't seem to be a great problem now that cannabis is legalized, and they've lied to us about MDMA, so maybe we really need to rethink psychedelics. And I think at the end of the day, what we will do is we will say we need to bring psychedelics into a public health paradigm, into a spiritual paradigm, and to a ritualistic paradigm. And our society will have access to these medicines to improve both our health and our spirituality.
1: I like your crystal ball. Thanks so much, Mark. You're welcome. Thanks again for listening to Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Do us a favor. Go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating or review. Tell your friends. That's how you can really help us out. Thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, Joey Witt for the intro music, California Smile for the outro music, and Brian Norman, who produced the show.